Step back, though, when you say that, because they spent a lot of time making it right. We're going to start with the life of Abram this morning in Genesis chapter 12. And so uh, we'll get into that. We'll recap the first 11 chapters, and then we'll walk through chapter 12 together. And prior to doing that, I, I want to sort of just reflect back on something that was interesting to me that was said at lunch this week. We had a Douglas County Evangelicals Fellowship lunch this week, which is a group of churches, any church that wants to come, and they come together, pray, worship, pray for the city, pray for things going on in their ministry area, partner together, collaborate, all that sort of thing. And a new pastor had just moved in town from Minnesota. So one of the guys in the back of the room says, hey, hey Darren, uh, what have you observed about Douglas County in your month, two months since you've been here? And so he smiles, and you can imagine kind of some of the things that he might have observed about Douglas County. But the thing that he chose to comment on was the independent streak, this strong desire to not be told what to do, how to do anything, what we can do with our land, what we can do with our guns, where we can hunt, where we can fish, where we can catch, when we can catch fish, hunt, uh, with what kind of tools we can catch fish, hunt. Uh, In fact, I I had heard a rumor that even there's restrictions on collecting water, and so I don't want to speak to those because I don't actually know those, but I think the the theme is you can't collect rainwater on your own land unless it comes off your structure, something to that effect. But the conversation in which it was discussed was very much, there's no one in this world that can tell me what I can do on my own land. No one anywhere can tell me what to do with my own land. And, And so some of you might think that's right. Absolutely. And anyone who has a problem with that, we can go outside and we can debate our differences civilly. And so the problem is, is we tend to, we tend to import this, uh, I can do what I want, when I want, where I want, this raise yourself up by your bootstraps, I don't need help from anyone mentality into our relationship with God. And so we celebrate, not just as Christians, we celebrate in culture people that have done something significant, and we celebrate them even more when we believe that they haven't had help, some sort of unfair advantage. And so... Uh, a couple people that come to mind. Some of you are familiar with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. He was born in 1948 in Georgia. Not a great place to be born at a very difficult time for our country. They had a home fire and his parents abandoned him and his brother and so they went to live with grandparents. Some of you are raising, some of you are grandparents and you are raising grandkids. Some of you are persons who were raised by grandpa or grandma and good things can come from that. But it's difficult, isn't it? It adds another layer of challenge to an already difficult and complicated world. But his grandpa took him out, and they worked in the fields from sunup to sundown. His grandfather took him out on an ice delivery business that he had, and Clarence learned to work hard, and that led to him being the first person in his family to go to university. That eventually led to a juror's doctorate, and then one day the Supreme Court. And so we think, wow, look what he did. The substance of who he is, look what he, look what he accomplished in spite of all of that. We think about Benjamin Franklin, born the 15th of 17 kids to a candle maker of, of no influence, of no uh, notoriety, of no wealth, of no connection. Look what he did on his own. He didn't need help from anyone. No, no trust fund, no special connection, special privilege. Look what he did. Some of you are familiar with the company Oracle and and Larry Ellison, who started that company uh, like 30 years ago or so, uh, 1977, started it with $2,000 of his own money. 
currently it's worth just under like $200 billion. And we say, wow, look at his innovation. Look at the vision that he had before anyone else had it. Look what he did. Look what he built. And so again, we take this independent streak, this I can do it my way, I can do it without you, I don't need anyone, and we bring that into our relationship with the Lord. So as we dive into the life of Abraham, I just want to ask the question, do we have the faith to follow? Do we have the faith for God to get the glory, not for people to look at us and say, look what he did, look what she did? Do we have the faith to do what God leads us to do, not what everyone expects us to do? Do we have the faith to follow? So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to chapter 12 of Genesis. Uh, Before I read the first three verses, I want to just bring us up to speed on Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, Over the course of the summer, we'll focus on Abram's life. Uh, So I just want to bring us up to speed real quick. Many of you are familiar with the creation account, the first couple chapters of Genesis, where God says, let us make man in our own image. And in Genesis 1, 28, we see that Embedded in the creation narrative is the goodness of God, his good intentions for his people, his good intentions to be generous, uh, to give them good things. Genesis 128 uh, reinforces that where God says to them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on earth. So some of you are thinking, see, I can collect my rainwater. But that's not what that passage is talking about. Um, But we see the goodness of God, don't we? We see the goodness of God to basically say, here is creation. Put a lot of time and thought into this. Here's creation. Enjoy it. See me in it. Worship me through it. Cultivate the land. Subdue it. Have dominion over it. Rule over it. And, And so we see the goodness of God at the very beginning. Now we know that Adam and Eve don't make the best decisions. Right? And we have what is known as the fall. And, and so sin enters the world. Sin enters, and it perverts the relationship with God. It perverts the relationship with each other. And the trickle-down is, is pretty quick and pretty severe, right? They're, they're boys, Cain and Abel, right? Cain kills his brother. Cain is jealous that his brother's obedient sacrifice is approved of by God, and his disobedient sacrifice is not approved right? This is how my kids act when they get in trouble. I say, I told you not to do that. But, but, but. Cain kills his brother and Cain points the finger at his brother just like Adam pointed the finger at Eve, just like Eve pointed the finger at serpent. And so we see very early on in the creation account, very early on in the scripture, that when sin gets a hold of us, we do a lot of finger pointing. Do a lot of finger pointing. It's everybody else's problem, not mine. I'm right. You're all wrong. And we don't run to God to get freedom from the sin that oppresses us, to get freedom from that. We run away from him, pointing the finger at everyone else and saying, you're all wrong. I'm right. It gets worse, doesn't it? And then so the Lord directs Noah, says, Noah, ugh. You've got to start over on this thing. You need a massive do-over. And so he instructs Noah to build this boat. And the floods come, and the earth essentially is wiped clean, except for Noah and his family and the animals that are on the boat. And again, we see God 
and his goodness, uh, almost verbatim in chapter 9, verse 1 of Genesis, and God blessed Noah. This is right after they come off the boat. And his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You almost get the sense of God as a father, maybe interacting with a wayward son or daughter and say, look, we put all the pieces back together, okay? Everything's good. Now go and enjoy. Go and walk in this thing that I've got for you. It's good. Trust me. It's good. So unfortunately, like Adam and Eve, they tend to doubt that what God says is good is good. They tend to not believe that God's good intentions for them are genuinely good intentions. And we see the earth continues to just get wicked, right? We're familiar, some of us are familiar with the Tower of Babel. And essentially you have this people group that comes together and they said, we need to make a name for ourselves. We are the best people group on the face of the earth. You could see Douglas County saying that, couldn't you? Is that that too much of a stretch? We're the best. We have the most beauty. We have the best rivers, the best fish in the rivers. And so they build this tower to assert themselves, to establish themselves, to show to everyone else their superiority. And God comes in and confuses their language, right? It's the gentlest thing God must have been able to think of to disrupt something that they were doing that he knew would destroy them. It is the gentlest thing he could possibly think of to disrupt something that they were doing that he knew would destroy them. And so even in correction, we see incredible gentle God. Uh, We see his good plans, his good intention, his good character played out in the way that he interacts with his people, with his creation. And so the genealogy from Noah and his son Shem uh, takes us to a man named Terah, who at the age of 70 has a young boy named Abram. And that's where we pick up in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And so the first point for you note-takers today, the first point is, is just this. The call to follow, and Abram's going to get that call. The call to follow is a call to cling to God. The call to follow is a call to cling to God. Let's read the first three verses. If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 12, 1, 2, and 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And in you all the families of the earth shall shall be blessed. Okay, so there's a lot there, right? God says to Abram, I'm going to make your name great. Your family, your line, blessing, land, provisions, protection. God says to Abram, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Blessings, land, provisions, protection. There's a a personal component of this uh, to Abraham in this covenant, and there's a promise to the blessing of the nation of Israel. And then Galatians 3.8 uh, provides uh, more support to, for us to understand that when God says all of the nations of the earth will be blessed for you, that that is primarily fulfilled in and through Jesus and that we are all of those nations that are being blessed through that line. Huge promise. Huge covenant. Dramatically shapes the narrative and the flow of of the Old Testament. And so I just want us to see 
that God has good things for his people, that he likes us, that he digs us, because we tend to more resemble the people building that tower of Babel so that others will see us, will recognize us, will take note of our extraordinary gifting, our superior intellect, our excellent workmanship, rather than Abram, who is simply called to follow. That says, I will make your name great. In contrast to Babel, where they were consumed with making their names great. Some of us are pretty busy building towers, aren't we? For some, uh, it's our children. Tower is your children. And so when someone says to you, uh, your kids are so well behaved, or maybe your son or daughter scored so well on this test, or maybe some of you who whose adult kids are, are, are making some really great decisions or have developed a fantastic career, and someone says, wow, I always knew that they would turn out this way. They're so sharp. Rather than saying, yes, praise God, what you say is, well, you don't say it out loud. <laughs> of course they did. I'm dad. I'm mom. Of course they did. We brought them up to think this way. We brought them up to make these kind of decisions because you, you've made them your tower, right? Uh, for some of us, it's a career and an advancement in all sorts of ways that we can advance and all sorts of ways that a career can be validating and affirming uh, of who we are. And so we spend all of our time and, and pour everything we have into this and, and it becomes a tower uh, that points to us. Whether we verbalize it or not, it becomes a tower uh, that points to us. Not something that we praise God for his provision and praise God for work and do our work as unto him. And, and so one of the ways that we kind of see this, or one of the ways, at least for me, that is useful to identify if something has become a tower rather than just a part of following God and an avenue of worship is the degree to which I have appropriate boundaries in that area. So whether it's family, whether it's work, whether it's a hobby, the degree to which there's appropriate boundaries in that sphere of life is a terrific indicator whether or not it's a tower that you're building or it's an act and an avenue of worship and a gift of the Lord. Uh, as we continue, I don't want to get too far away from this idea that God has his good intentions. He digs us. He even likes us. We know that he loves us. Um, all of the blessings in Genesis 1 through 3 uh, of chapter 12 are subordinate to the call to go. And so Abram is called to go. This is what he does. And all the cool stuff, that's what God does. Okay? And so we see that God is the initiator of this covenant with Abram. Uh, we don't have the opinion that it was Abram's worthiness of it or that it was Abraham's pattern of faithfulness, but that God comes to him and says, we got to move this thing forward. Things aren't going well. I'm going to make myself known to you and through you be a blessing to the entire world. The call on us this morning is to cling to God. And going is a big deal. Some of you guys have left family, and that is a big deal. Uh, some of you have had tremendous loss or some sort of hurt, and that is a big deal. A.W. Tozer writes on the subject, and he says, um, I got it written. He says, it's doubtful whether God can bless a person greatly uh, until he has first hurt that person greatly. And that's not to say that God enjoys hurting us. That's not to say that our Father looks down at us as sons and daughters and has a desire to bring pain and suffering into our life. But it is to say that the process of walking with Jesus, the process of following, is a perpetual work of the Lord of, of peeling our hands off of something lesser 
so that we can cling to him and take a hold of his better. It's a perpetual process of God pulling our fingers off of the lesser, whether it be career, whether it be a, a family, whether it be kids, parents, siblings, some sort of special friendship or relationship. For those of you that are retired, your financial portfolio, whatever it is, constantly pulling our fingers off of these lesser things so that we'll cling to him and discover something better. And that does hurt because we cling really tightly to things that affirm us, things that validate us. And so that does hurt sometimes. But it's a perpetual process of him pulling our fingers off of the lesser in order to cling to him and take hold of his greater. So the call to follow is the call to cling. Uh, Secondly, the call to follow is a call to respond to God. I want to read verses 4 through 9 of Genesis 12 and and just consider Abram's response. Consider Abram's response. So Abram, verse 4, as the Lord had told him and Lot went, so Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired at Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah, at the time the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord and had, it, and had appeared to him, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So, shocker of shocker, God doesn't tell him where he's going, doesn't tell him how long it's going to take, doesn't tell him the path that they're going to go, right? There's no Google Maps, uh, just Abram, follow me. Let's go, and I mean, shocker of shockers, <laughs> the twist in the story is Abram actually goes, right? Abram actually goes, and, and so they start to move in to Canaan, into this area that's going to be described as a promised land, and the Lord takes him from the north end to the south end, essentially coast to coast, allows him to see the land, and he sees that it's, it's inhabited. And so it's interesting that the Lord appears to him and says, Abram, I know it's inhabited now, but this is all going to be your descendants. So some of you have had something like this happen where it's really interesting when the Lord paints a picture for you of of what's coming and all you can see are the obstacles. All you can see are the barriers. All you can see is that the land is inhabited. And so you're, you're trusting God for what he says is true. You're trusting God for what he has promised in his word, but all you can see are obstacles. And so the Lord takes him into Canaan says, this is all going to be for your family. This is all going to be for your descendants. Even though you look around right now, Abram, and just see inhabitants, and then they continue on and are going to head to Egypt here in just a second. And and so maybe a question that I'd want to ask is, how is it that Abram is able to do this? How is it that Abram is able to respond to this call? Some of you uh, have minivans, and you have put lots of kids in minivans. And as you put lots of kids in minivan, the question that you get is, where are we going? And so it's really hard for our family to get into the car and go somewhere without answering the question, where are we going? What are we going to do when we get there? Who's going to be there? Do we have to get on a freeway to get there? How long is it going to take? 
What are we going to do after that? What are we going to do tomorrow? What are we going to do after tomorrow? Abram gathers all of his stuff. And he goes without answers to any of those questions. Some of you are considering huge decisions right now. Talk to people first hour. Big, big decisions. And you just don't have clarity or a sense of where God's leading. Abraham just gets up and he follows with what he knows the Lord has told him to do today. And oh, goodness, hopefully the Lord makes tomorrow clear too. How does that happen? Turn to Hebrews 11. Uh, Hebrews 11 speaks to this. Uh, We'll read verses 8, 9, and 10 together. I wanted you to see from Hebrews 11 that Abram responds by faith, trusting an active trust in God, and Abram responds knowing and believing and trusting that the good future God has for him is secure and is reliable and is honestly and genuinely good. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith, it says, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Here it is. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, and here's the second part. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So in 9, by faith, he went to live in the promised land. And in 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and whose builder is God. Faith. Martin Luther says, faith is a living and a bold trust in God's grace. It includes belief, but it's not just belief. It includes action. It's not just action. It includes conviction. It's not just conviction. We like to try to condense things down into bite-sized pieces that we can digest and that we can do and then feel good about ourselves for having done. And so sometimes when we think about faith, we think about just obedience and then doing what God says so that we can do those things and say, see, I did what I'm supposed to. Uh, How many of you know that that sometimes the greatest act of faith is actually not moving forward? Sometimes the greatest act of faith is not addressing uh, a problem or a fear or a concern that you have and trusting that God has a plan, that God sees the need, God is going to address the need in his perfect timing, and if he needs you to participate, if he has a plan, if he wants you to participate, he'll make it known. We tend to just jump in, don't we? As much as we talk about faith being an active and an action-oriented word, I never want us to forget that sometimes the hardest thing to do is to just stay, uh, trusting that he'll reveal what needs to be revealed in his perfect timing. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, we live by faith, and you know this, not by sight. To the blind man in Mark 10.52, he says, your faith has healed you. And so I, I might just submit to you from Genesis to Revelation, but also from Genesis 12 and from Hebrews 11, that without faith, it's going to be impossible to please God. God, that if we want to see God move in our lives, in and through us, into our spheres of influence with a truly transforming presence and power, it's going to require steps of faith. It is going to require steps of obedience. It's going to require demonstrations that we believe who he said he is, that he does what he says he will do, and that he's 
got us. It is a call to cling to the Lord. It is a call to respond. Abraham is now responding to God's call on his life. Sometimes, well, those of you that have prayed for a specific decision, uh, at, at one point or another, you've said, Lord, do we relocate to the East Coast? Do we uh, buy the greenhouse? Do we, uh, whatever it is, and, and you pray and you ask the Lord for things. Uh, you pray and ask the Lord for direction in life, for, for wisdom with the decision. And often the posture that we take is, God, would you just show me? Would you just give me a sign? Just make it clear. Just tell me and then I'll do it. Whatever you want, God, I'll do. Whatever you want. I'm so holy and righteous, I'll, I'll do it. Um, you know, that I don't believe that my kids disobey me because my instructions are unclear. I don't think that they disobey because they didn't hear the entire piece of instruction. I think that they disobey because they don't want to do what I said. I think that they disobey because they think what they're doing is better than what I'm telling them I want them to do. They want to be little bosses, right? What do we hear kids say often? I can't wait till I'm a mom. I can't wait till I'm a dad. Okay, so they're not saying, I can't wait till I have responsibility and have to mow the lawn and have to pay the bills and have to take care of little children, right? What are they saying? I can't wait until I get to make the rules. I can't wait until I get to be the boss. They don't want to do what I want them to do. And, and so we don't, we don't tend to grow out of that because God's instruction to us is quite clear. Here's some examples from Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. I've looked exhaustively for a caveat. There isn't one. It doesn't say if you had a good day at work. It doesn't say if you just got a promotion. It doesn't say if you're feeling well, got a good night's sleep. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Similarly, in the same cluster of passages. The Lord probably did that so that we wouldn't skip one and we'd realize it speaks to both. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto Christ. From the next chapter, Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents. How about this one? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind. In a specific nuance, whoever has two jackets, share with him who has none. From Luke 3. It's Roseburg. It's Douglas County. We need a lot of jackets. The weather changes fast. I don't feel guilty for having a lot of jackets. Whoever has two jackets, share with him who has none. Be generous. Be sacrificial. Be attentive to the needs of those around you. How about from Romans 12? Be devoted to one another. I don't think that we are unclear about what God has asked of us. I think that our disobedience comes from us not wanting to do what he's asked. From believing that what we're doing is objectively better for us than what he's asked of us, what he has for us. We like our stuff. We like what we're doing. We want more of it, not less. We want to be little bosses. We want to be little gods. Abraham obeys by faith. Second, uh, Abraham obeys looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and whose builder is God. And so the extra biblical material that speaks to this period of time, not part of the Bible, but written by uh, non-biblical writers, uh, says that Abraham was given a vision by the Lord of what the new heavens looked like. So whether that's true or not, 
it's interesting that Abraham is fixated on his future. That from Hebrews 11, Abraham, as he's going about this journey, is thinking of God's eternal, good, certain future that is secure. And so some of you are people that like to have things to look forward to. It helps you in the day-to-day. I'm not that way. I'm a routine, a monotonous routine type of person. Uh, But I married someone who likes to have something to look forward to. So if we ever go on vacation, that's probably why it is, because to me it's just an interruption to the work week. Um, We'll dig into that at a different time. So this summer we're going to go visit my family. And we're very excited to go visit my family because they're my family, just north of Spokane. You know what we're also really excited for? Leaving the kids with my family and spending a couple nights in Spokane, sweet Spokane. So when Zach, our four-year-old, comes out of his room at 10.30 at night and is not tired and wants to wrestle, sweet Spokane. If it's been an especially long day uh, with the kids, if we're tired, sweet Spokane. And that's really nothing special about Spokane. Spokane is not that great of a city. But as we look forward to that, uh, it helps us get through some of the difficulties of the, the daily rhythm, the daily grind, the daily routine. And so maybe a question that I might ask you is, I know I want to go to Spokane. <laughs> Do we want what God has for us? Do we want what God has for those who follow him? Is there an appetite, a longing, a, hunger, a hungering, and also a firm conviction that that's what's waiting for us? Because if I have a rock-solid conviction that my eternity is secure, that changes the way I'm going to live today. And so we should be able to look back at our weeks, back at our months, back at the patterns and the rhythms of our lives and say there's evidence that this is a person living for that. This is a person looking forward to that. This is a person who's not consumed and obsessive about the here and the now and what's going on and the ups and the downs and the ebbs and the flows of culture, of politics, of finances, of employment, of families, of health. This is a person who is fixated on that. And that doesn't mean to dismiss our circumstances or to dismiss our relationships or to dismiss the way that God is working in our hearts and our lives today. It is simply to say that when God calls us to go, we just want to be honest and say, that's kind of difficult. And Abraham goes by faith, trusting God is who he is and would do what he said he would do. And Abraham goes in the certainty of the future that God has for him, trusting that that's a good future. Abraham can go on a journey in this life because he knows ultimately where his journey will end. Abraham can absorb the loss of family, of friends, of culture, of his familiarity uh, because ultimately his future is secure and not encompassed by those things. Abraham can move forward with uncertainty because he knows who goes with him. Sometimes we have a problem trusting God, don't we? As you think about this Abrahamic covenant and this promise made to Abraham and to Israel and to all the nations of the world via those paths, uh, 
I think we can even just look to the presence, to the existence of the nation of Israel and say, clearly God is a promise-keeping God because they shouldn't be here, should they? They, they? they probably should be gone if enough people have had their way, right? It's been tried. The mere presence of the nation of Israel should remind us that God is a promise-keeping God and we can trust him also. Uh, let's finish with verses 10 through 20. The call to follow is also a call to trust. It's a call to cling, it's a call to respond, and it's a call to trust. Genesis 12, 10-20. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, these are probably words that should never be uttered in any family under any circumstances, in any form or variation. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. It starts good. I know you are a woman beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Is the high point for Abram. Say that you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the prince, princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Verse 16, And for her sake he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. I guess the translation would be that would be a lot of money. Verse 17, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her, go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Abram goes to Egypt. The Nile Delta would be a great place for growing crops. Almost famine-proof. There's food there. On his way in, he says, Oh, goodness. I'm going to be treated like an outsider. I'm going to be treated like a foreigner. The same protections and provisions won't be on me that are on residents of Egypt. This is a little scary. I've got to do something. I'm worried. I'm concerned. I see trouble coming. I can fix this. Don't we know that following the Lord often leads us to some concern? Because he's taking us outside of ourselves. He's taking us beyond himself to where, beyond ourselves, to where he is so that it's his power, not our power, so that it's his fruit, his results, his kingdom, and not ours. And all we can say is, yeah, but, ooh, that looks scary. That looks difficult. That looks unsafe. Ooh, that doesn't look like something I'd like to do or a person I'd like to be around. Abraham says, I can fix this. Hey, Sarai, just tell him that you're my sister and then everything will be good for me. Some of you have had some significant conversations in your marriage. It seems like a big one. <laughs> Say you're my sister and it'll go well for me. Abraham's got a plan, foolproof, right? 
until Pharaoh's princes see Sarai and say, she is a good-looking woman. And they take her into Pharaoh's house. Can you imagine, those of you who have tried to cover your tracks, Abram's, oh no. This is not how I saw things going. Now she's in Pharaoh's house. And all this stuff starts showing up. All of these gifts start showing up. Some commentators suspect that that was essentially a, a dowry paid to her family. Can you imagine Abram just being doted upon gifts pouring in. Every day another box from Amazon comes and another gift. And he's thinking, oh no, she's going to kill me. I love that God doesn't leave him there, right? I love that God doesn't say, Abram, you have made a mess of this. Let's see how you're going to get out. Go for it. I'm going to stand back and watch because you're stupid. I'm glad that, that God doesn't come to Abram and say, now, Abram, Let's talk. I told you this is what you needed to do, and I told you this is what I would do. Was that unclear? Was there something that you missed? Because I thought I relayed everything to you very clearly. I thought we had an understanding. He doesn't rub Abram's face in it. He doesn't leave Abram there. He doesn't abandon Abram. He doesn't come to him disgusted and disappointed. Isn't it amazing that God comes to Abram, this mess that Abram's made, literally just out of leaving the promised land. I mean, this is two steps forward and a hundred steps backwards. Some of you have been there many, many, many times. Two steps forward, a hundred steps backwards. And we see that God does not abandon his promise to Abram just because Abram doesn't prove worthy of that promise. God does not pull back his grace, pull back his generosity, pull back his goodness just because Abraham proves that he's not worthy of it. And so the call to follow is not a call to perfect obedience. The call to follow is not a a call to never messing up, never stepping in quicksand. It's a call to, to follow. And so when we fall and we're following, we get back up. And we see that the Father's hand is outstretched like this. Like, hey, let's go. You stumbled. Come on, I got you. Keep coming. Uh, move it back to, to modern day Israel. Some have said, we have no business supporting Israel. We have no business advocating for their well-being because look at all of the atrocities that have com- been committed by the Israeli people. And so isn't it interesting that in spite of some of the things they've done, in spite of the things that have been done to them, again, We see the faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God. We see the faithfulness of a promise-keeping God. And aren't our lives additional evidences of that? He initiates the covenant with Abram. He ratifies and initiates the enhancements to the covenant. And he does his part, doesn't he? Hasn't God done his part? Hasn't he done his part in our life? As we wrap up this morning... Uh, some of you are weighing big decisions and, and so the call to go, you're like, oh no, does this mean God wants me to go? Is that is go the word that I need to hear this morning? Oh, that's scary. I'd rather stay. Some of you are, are wanting to, uh, you're wanting to go and, and you need to consider that the Lord may be saying stay. It's a, it's a call to follow, right? It's a call to faith, to walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, and, and so I may be in closing, I might just say, When God calls us to go, he goes with us, right? 
When God calls us to go, he goes with us. Now, he expects that we're going to cling. He expects that we're going to trust. He expects that we're going to respond. But for those of us that have fallen down on our face, there's a lot of hope in this passage because we see that we serve a covenant-keeping God. For those of us that have stumbled and fallen and all we can see is the mess that we've made, we serve a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God who from Genesis with Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel and everyone in between continued to want good things, to continued to be generous, continued to do good for his creation even when his creation proved unworthy of it. I don't know what God is going to call you to do this week. Uh, I know that Abram took a step of faith, not knowing where he was going, but was obedient today, trusting that tomorrow God would be obedient. What does it look like to just be obedient today and trust him for tomorrow's answers? You won't find too many places in here where God comes and says, here's my five-year plan. I want to just lay it out for you, make this real easy. Pay attention to month 26. I got a big surprise waiting there. You just won't find that very much. Because in the call to go, we see the Lord peeling our hands off of the lesser so that we'll cling to him so that we can take hold of the greater. It is a good thing for him to peel our hands off of the lesser to take hold of him so that we can cling to the better. Let's pray. Father, we just would ask that your spirit would give to us what we need this morning by way of direction. Lord, and that you would allow us the wisdom and the discernment to step back and to say, maybe this is about more than direction. Maybe this is about where my heart is at, clinging to my Father. Lord, we praise you that you are a covenant-keeping God, a promise-keeping God, because you've said you'll never leave us or forsake us. You've said you'll make a way out of temptation. you said you'll give to us wisdom. You've said that our salvation is secure. So we cling to those promises, Lord, because we know we're not worthy of them. Thank you for the way that you have proven yourself individually, proven yourself even as we step back and just look at the global landscape in 2018. Lord, show us what it means to follow, to cling, to trust, and to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.